Congregation, our text this afternoon comes to us from Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, beginning at verse 1 and reading through to the end. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the command of God our Savior. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of dissipation and, or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless, as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So far. Beloved of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the truth important? Perhaps it's a strange question to ask at the beginning of a sermon. Because after all, if the truth isn't important, why would I even bother being up here proclaiming the Word of God? Yet we live in a time when the very concept of truth is under attack. Truth is no longer understood to be a universal or all-encompassing principle that applies to everyone. No. Our postmodern world has redefined truth and reduced it to a personal preference. Much like our preference for ice cream. Some like chocolate, some like vanilla. Some believe the Bible, others the Koran or any other number of worldviews. What it boils down to in our secular world is what works. If it works for you, then it must be true for you. 
Man has become his own God, determining his own truth. This modern way of thinking is also alive and well within the church. Some believe that Christianity should be practiced this way and others that way. And these decisions are often being made on the basis of personal preference rather than on the objective truth of God's word. For many in the broader church community, church membership is simply a matter of personal choice. Even within the church, sinful humanity wants to determine the truth for themselves. And really, it should not be all that surprising to us. This is the state of carnal man. It's been the pattern since the fall in the garden. Romans 1.21 reminds us that although fallen man knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. And we read the implications of that choice a few verses further in the book of Romans. Cardinal man, ex- sorry, carnal man exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And isn't that what our postmodern culture is encouraging us to do? To exchange the truth of God's word for the lie that we can determine our own truth. Beloved, there's nothing new under the sun. Paul encountered much the same thing in Crete some 2,000 years ago when he wrote his epistle to Titus. It was a culture of excess, where gluttony and laziness were the norm. There was a moral decay in Crete that earned the inhabitants the reputation for being liars. The culture had abandoned the truth. And in the midst of this decadent culture, not unlike our own, there were also grave concerns within the church. There were false teachers promoting lies for the sake of gain, bringing whole families to ruin. And so in response, Paul commissions Titus to straighten things out. And the first thing he instructs Titus to do is to appoint proper leadership within the church of Crete. Therefore, I preach to you God's word under the following theme and points. In response to a deceitful world, the Lord appoints Christian leaders to defend his truth. We will consider the authority of Christian leaders, the character of Christian leaders, and finally the task of Christian leaders. As our theme suggests, Paul is deeply concerned about the truth, a concern that is as relevant today as it was back then. But in order to see the full significance of this concern, we need to look at the context in which the letter to Titus was written. Paul's letter to Titus was likely written after his release from prison in Rome. This is why we don't read about the Church of Crete in the book of Acts. And although Paul had briefly stopped in Crete on his way to stand trial before Caesar, according to uh, Acts 27, it's unlikely that he had time to stop there and start a church during this brief stopover. It's generally believed that it was sometime after Paul's release from prison that he went to Crete as part of his missionary journey to the Gentiles to establish a church. And we can conclude from the letter to Titus that there were both Jews and Gentiles. 
within the church of Crete. Paul makes reference to both the Jews who were likely converts from the local Jewish synagogues and to the native Cretans. We also know from Galatians that Titus, his companion, was a Gentile convert who had traveled with Paul to Jerusalem and had also been entrusted with the task of collecting funds in Corinth. He had become a trusted assistant of Paul. And according to our text, he accompanied Paul to Crete. When Paul moved on from Crete, he leaves Titus behind with the task of uh, straightening out what was left unfinished and appointing elders in every town. Now it seems strange that Paul would have left Titus behind without telling him his reason for doing so. And now after departing, he he forwards his reasons in a letter. And of course it's impossible to know what Paul had discussed with Titus prior to departing, but it's likely that Titus was well aware of his task. So why? Why does Paul follow up with this letter? Perhaps the answer lies in the character and the use of the apostolic writings. By this time, Paul had written several letters to the churches. His authority and apostleship were unquestioned. In fact, Paul's letters were being used to support and promote apostolic teaching throughout the churches often being circulated from church to church. For example, the teachings contained in the letter to the church in Corinth was considered authoritative in the other churches as well. The authority of Paul's teaching went well beyond the church to which a letter was addressed. And the same can be said of Paul's letter to Titus. With this letter in hand, Titus could show the nature of his authority within the churches. His authority had been given by the Apostle Paul, who in turn had been called and commissioned by Christ himself. Paul makes much this point from the onset of the letter in his salutation. Paul begins his letter with the customary way of laying out his credentials. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. In Paul's previous letters, Paul usually refers to himself as a servant or a slave, but the usual reference is Jesus Christ. Paul, a servant of Christ. But in this one instance, when he writes this letter to Titus, he refers to himself as Paul, a servant of God. This reference conveys a more direct connection to the Old Testament. For instance, Moses was referred to as a servant of God in Exodus 14, verse 31. Or one might consider Samuel in the temple, who replied to the Lord, Speak, for your servant is listening. Such servants in the Old Testament were set apart for special service to the Lord, much like an apostle in the New Testament was called to a special office by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This self-designation, would have sent a message to the recent Jewish converts that Paul was commissioned by a special task by God himself. And to those more acquainted with the Christian community, he reminds them of his apostolic authority rooted in the lordship of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to explain the nature of his calling. He is an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. 
Paul is a servant of God the Father and an apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ for the purpose of calling those chosen to eternal life, God's elect, into a living fellowship with God the Father, a relationship that could only be entered into by coming to the knowledge of the truth. And the truth here is not limited to simple head knowledge, but as our text states, such truth accords with godliness. This truth sets a believer on a path of righteous living that displays itself in a life of truth steeped in the word of God. John 8 records Jesus saying much the same thing. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Abiding in his word means living out of the truth revealed by the message of the gospel. And such knowledge leads inevitably to what Paul states next, to hope of eternal life. Now we need to understand that the character of this hope is different from our common conception of hope. Hope in common use often has a sense of conditionality attached to it. We hope for something that might happen. But the hope that Paul is speaking of is a hope rooted in, the certain, rooted in certainty because it is a hope rooted in the sure promises of our faithful God. It's the same reason that the author to the Hebrews states, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Such hope is anchored in the character of our God, who Paul proclaims never lies. He is the embodiment of truth, and his promises are sure, and he has made a promise that there will be a holy people chosen to eternal life, elect from every tribe and nation gathered from this world who are on the road to a heavenly destination. Our text states that this promise was conceived of and put in place in eternity before the beginning of the ages. And at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Paul is declaring that these sure promises given by a God who cannot lie were made known and revealed at the proper time by the faithful preaching of the gospel, which was entrusted to him according to his calling. God's plan for salvation had been revealed through the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. God was indeed true to his word, and his ongoing plan for salvation continued through the proclamation of the gospel, as it continues today. And isn't that what Paul's committed to proclaiming, as we can read in 1 Corinthians, but we preach Christ crucified. And now that Paul has laid out the source of his authority and his purpose, he addresses Titus, to Titus. My true child in a common faith, Paul addresses Titus as a father, not on the basis of flesh and blood, but on the basis of a shared faith. It's often said that blood is thicker than water, but Scripture paints a different picture here. 
In Matthew 12, verse 50, Jesus declares that whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. There is something that binds us even closer than blood, a common faith. Secured by our Savior on the cross and established in eternity by our Heavenly Father. Paul points to that bond of fellowship to ensure the readers of this letter recognize Titus' authority. He is one with Paul in faith and purpose, administering his task under the headship of the apostle, a true child. Paul goes on as an apostle to extend God's greeting to Titus a blessing of favor and peace, further confirmation that Titus was a true member of God's family. And following this, Paul explains his reasons for leaving Titus in Crete. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. One might initially conclude that Paul gives Titus two distinct tasks to put what remained in order, and to appoint elders. But a closer study suggests that these two things are actually one in the same. From our reading in Acts 14, we learn that churches were established by the preaching of the gospel, and later it was common practice to appoint elders in the newly formed churches. The appointment of elders seems to be one of the final steps in the establishment of a new church. After preaching and strengthening the churches, Acts states they appointed elders. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. The appointment of elders was often accompanied by the laying on of hands, a sign that authority had been conferred upon them. In Crete, the churches had already been established, but the work of church planting was not yet finished because elders had not yet been appointed. This was what remained to be put in order. Once this task had been completed, the churches could begin to function on their own and initiate the practice of choosing office bearers for themselves. This was the practice of the established churches, as we can read in Acts chapter 6. The disciples instructed the church at Jerusalem to pick some brothers from within the congregation to be appointed to administer the ministry of mercy within the congregation. And here again we read that they laid their hands on them. The apostles who were commissioned and called by Christ extended their authority to the office bearers of the early church. Titus was to do the same thing having been commissioned by the apostle, who in turn was commissioned by Christ, was to put suitable men in positions of authority within the church of Crete. And here we see the authority of the church ultimately rooted in the authority given by Christ. And we continue in line with this practice of choosing office bearers from within the congregation and conferring on them the authority of Christ. And given the weight of this responsibility, it is fitting that Paul gives Titus some further instruction, guidelines for choosing office bearers who will be truly able to lead the congregation in the knowledge of the truth. These scriptural parameters given by Christ through the Apostle Paul for choosing office bearers continues to serve the well-being of the churches even today. And that brings us 
to our second point, the character of Christian leadership. In Paul's instructions about the character of Christian leaders, twice he states they must be blameless. To suffer, this word blameless in other versions is also translated as above reproach. To suffer reproach means to be put to shame. And so a Christian leader was not to be open to any charge that was likely to bring him shame. And so, through association with the church, caused the church to be exposed to ridicule. In other words, blameless. And then Paul returns to the family relationship. He states an elder must be the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, or his children faithful and not open to the charge of dissipation or insubordination. This text literally states that an elder should be a one-woman man, implying complete faithfulness within the marriage relationship. And it moves on to his children. And here we encounter a challenge in our translation. The word translated as faithful can also be translated as believer. There are a number of reasons to prefer the translation given in the New King James Version of faithful. In 1 Timothy 3 verse 4, Paul lays out the requirements for elders much in the same way as Titus does regarding their children. There it says he must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. This instruction is more in line with the idea of children being faithful to their fathers through submission. In addition, what follows in Titus fits better with the notion of being faithful. Children are to be faithful and not open to the charge of dissipation and insubordination. In other words, submissive to their fathers. Dissipation in modern terms would be to live in our sensual lusts, through such activities as partying, drinking, or carousing, and insubordination would include such things as being mouthy, disrespectful, and disobedient. If children within a household displayed such unfaithfulness, then the father's ability to manage the affairs of the church would be called into question. And Paul goes on to explain why. As God's stewards, they must be blameless. The dominant idea is that if a man is able to manage his own household well, if he is faithful to his wife and diligent in raising his children, then he will be able to manage God's household as well. And now Paul expands on this notion of being blameless. Not only does he provide some guidelines regarding his family, but he provides a list of qualities that an elder must possess. And he goes on afterwards to give a list of character traits that they must not possess. He must not, or sorry, it starts with the not. He must not be self-willed or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, sober-minded, upright, holy, and self-controlled. 
To be self-willed or quick-tempered would be detrimental in dealing with those who were insubordinate, as Paul instructs Titus later in the chapter. And later in chapter 3, Paul warns Titus to avoid quarreling. The elder's rebuke is rather to lead to soundness of faith and needs to be exercised according to the qualities listed in verse 8, using self-control, uprightness, and discipline. Likewise, an elder was to avoid such behavior that would lead him astray from his duty of being a good steward of God's household. Drunkenness and greed were the opposites of the disciplined and self-controlled virtues necessary to be suitable overseers in the church of Christ. Hospitality as a virtue in the early church was actually much more than what we think of today because it often involved taking in those who were being persecuted for the faith with the result that the elder himself might be exposed to hardship and ridicule. An elder was to be willing to put himself out for the sake of the family of God. Such character traits served to make the elder one who was suitable to teach. That he was steeped in the truth as set out by the gospel. Through both his walk and his talk, the elder was to be one who exemplified the truth of the gospel in both word and deed. And this brings us to the final quality that Paul insists an elder possess. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Because only one who held firmly to the word of God would be an effective leader in the church of Christ. Paul himself declared that his task was for the sake of the elect and their knowledge of the truth. He was convicted of the sure promises of God and he commissions Titus, a true son, who shared that conviction. And then he instructs Titus to appoint others who also are convicted, holding firmly to the message of the gospel. Such character traits must continue to typify those suitable for the office of elder. And he goes on to tell us why so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to exhort those who contradict it. And that brings us to our third point, the task of Christian leaders. The reason that Paul insists that elders are able to give sound instruction is because there were many within the church who were empty talkers and deceivers. And according to verse 16, they claimed to know God, but were really insubordinate, not grounded in the truth. He especially takes issue with the circumcision party who insisted that members of the church conform to the legal requirements of the Old Testament law. This outward conformity was quite different from what Paul has in mind. For Paul, the truth was to lead to godliness, not simple conformity. Verse 15 states that to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. The root of the problem is internal, the mind and the conscience. If that's not right before God, then it's impossible to please Him. Hebrews 11 verse 6 states that without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
That is why Titus states, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works, even if those works may look good on the outside. Works not rooted in faith are not pleasing to the Lord. As a result, Paul says, they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. True godliness begins when we place our faith and hope in the sure promises of God, revealed in the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as Paul alludes to in the opening of his letter. But some in the church were leading people astray through false teaching, even bringing whole families into ruin. And isn't that what we often see? Those who go astray often place their own families on a path that puts them on a road that leads to destruction. Paul says the elder is responsible to silence those on this path who teach falsely. Elders, it's your duty to inquire of the faith life of the flock under your charge and to teach and instruct those in the way of the truth. And so, beloved, when the elders come to your home for a home visit and they ask the difficult and the personal questions that dig beneath the surface to see whether your life is rooted in the sure hope of our Savior on the... Don't be upset. Rather, congregation, be thankful. We live in a world rooted in deceit where lying is the norm. The elder of the church is there to ensure that faith is sound, anchored in the sure promises of God. And Paul wants to impress upon Titus just how bad the problem is. And he does so by pointing to one of their own poets. He writes, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Crete was known for its immorality and had earned the reputation for dishonesty. But if we are true to Scripture, then all humanity deserves this reputation. Psalm 116 verse 11 teaches that all men are liars. The cretin then or the postmodern now, both of whom want you to believe the lie that you can follow your own way. That's why the Lord has called the church to appoint men of character, to positions of authority, men of sound faith, able to teach. Beloved, in the midst of a deceitful world, The Lord has appointed elders to defend his truth within the congregation, to instruct and teach God's people. Should there be those found promoting falsehood, not abiding in the truth within the congregation, God calls the elder to rebuke them. But such a rebuke does not have the purpose of creating animosity or dissension within the congregation, but rather its intent is that they may be sound in faith, Our God knows our sinful inclinations. He knows that we are given to believe the lie. And so in His mercy, He calls us into fellowship with His church where the gospel of salvation is being proclaimed. He bids us to believe those sure promises of God secured by our Savior on the cross and proclaimed from week to week. And if that wasn't enough, He appoints office bearers those anchored in the sure promises of God to ensure that I don't fall prey to the lies and deceit of this world and so be led astray on the path that leads to destruction. The God who cannot lie has given us a sure promise of salvation. In contrast to the world's lies, He has a plan for preserving His church 
and the elder is a vital part of that plan put in place for our defense. What a blessing. Amen.